Welcome to Team Rabbit Hole Edition 149 with Kistelmeier through the magnifying glass. Biologist, chemist, three thinking scientists. And with the uh. last, <laughs> join the team as we learn about epigenetics, new prospects on health and disease, and go down this, allow me to say, viral rabbit hole. Welcome, Kistel. Welcome. Thank you for having me. And um, good evening to our listeners. Thanks for coming on. I hope whatever glass shattering that was, everybody's all right. Um, so something we typically do at the beginning of these episodes is to talk about the corresponding synchronistic numerological numbers with card decks. So uh, this is episode 149, which would be 15 in the major arcana which is the temperance card i am astonished by the beauty of life in all of its facets temperance is seeing the extraordinary in the ordinary exquisite balance a period of rebirth slowing down and viewing the world with fresh magical perspectives trusting your intuition Raphael, what would this card be so here we have quite fittingly it is episode 149 so that is 13 14, that is a 5, and in this case it is 41 with a Pleiades card, guilt, past timeline. In the ancient days, well-intentioned actions by Pleiadians ended up causing a whole planet to be destroyed. Since that time, they have felt a tremendous amount of grief and guilt as a species. They have healed a lot since then, but many humans still carry these patterns. Look deeply at the things in your life you feel guilty about. The wisdom you have now can create compassion in your heart. Let that compassion flood the wounded part of you. Let the love from the universe fill the part of you where the guilt still lives. Let it go. All is forgiven by the universe. Now you must forgive yourself. I must forgive myself because I think I misspoke and said it was the 15th episode. It was 14, like you were saying. Good call. Math. Yay. Uh, Crystal, out of curiosity, did either of those cards resonate with you? Oh, yeah. Um, I thought about why I'm so um, grateful and thankful for the things I love, for nature, science, health, and ethics. And this um, love began when I was born and raised, and uh, we moved from... Austria to Egypt, where I enjoyed with my family, father, mother, brothers and sister, um, the good times, the people, the time at the sea, at the border of the sea, doing snorkeling and um, having a good time outside with nature, with sun, with people. I was a really little, little baby, and uh, but we stayed three and a half years, and there I became um, like a child that loves nature and sun. And um, going back to Austria and then to Germany, um, I did more um, to um, learn about these things. I read books, but we also went outside on Sundays with family. And um, I love nature. We collected plants and berries. And uh, this was a good time. And so I love um, plants and animals. 
and um, I'm interested in the background of this. So I read a lot and I asked questions and if the questions couldn't be answered, I tried to find out more and I saw that all the creatures struggle for their life and that's why I have a warm feeling for nature and for um, everything that lives. And um, yes, the sun is shining into my heart and in the heart of other people. And this um, is a great thing. We, we cannot imagine how great this is. We just get a little tiny small piece of the whole universe and all the living and loving that is inside. That's it at the moment. Well, that's fascinating. Um, it reminds me a little kind of what you're talking about in terms of Bach. Uh, had a, a song called the well-tempered clavier and kind of in line with temperance card uh, where everything in creation, uh, even the things we can't observe, whether it's ultraviolet light or dark matter or anything like that uh, is finely tuned uh, in a very kind of chaotic yet organized symphony of uh, temperance. You know, it's, it's tempered and it's singing a song. So out of curiosity, do you remember much about Egypt? Did you go to the great pyramids? Yes, we went to the Great Pyramids and um, we saw a lot of things like a museum and uh, all the things. We went by boat to the coral reefs, um, to the lighthouses. And yes, the, um, my brother, even at that time it was allowed, he climbed the, the big pyramid, the Cheops Pyramid. Yeah, that's what he did. And we we were on on the camel riding and yes, um, just um, curious about the things. We did some journeys to learn more about the country. And later, I read a lot of books concerning history and all the mysteries that are around it. Yeah. So it sounds like your brother is an initiate of the pyramid at some level. Uh, I know that people can't climb the pyramids now, um, but people like Aleister Crowley and others um, have done it. And actually, I've seen a really interesting uh, photograph of Miles, or not Miles Davis, what was his name? Um, Satchmo, but I'm forgetting his name now. Um, Louis Armstrong playing the trumpet in front of his girlfriend or wife in front of the Sphinx. So it's a, definitely a magical place. Uh, and I'm glad that you didn't just hang out in the desert. Um, getting off to the coral reefs and uh, snorkeling um, is a beautiful way to experience the vibrancy of life. Sounds like you had a tempered kind of reality. The hot desert, the cool water, very cool. Um, and I'm familiar with Jacques Cousteau and stuff. Uh, how old are you when you were doing this? Was that, I mean, obviously instilled a little um, magic in your thinking with, with looking at the world in a curious way. Uh, were you like really young or how old were you? Um, I, I came as a baby and I left when I was about five years old, but I have a very good remembrance of this time because I did, um, like collecting muzzles and shells. And, uh, I always gazed at the beautiful flowers I found at the, some a beach where we were. And so I remember a lot of it in my heart and in my soul. Very formative uh, times in the becoming of a child. Uh, I have very early memories too, so I don't doubt that it made a big impact on who you are. 
So was your family more scientific? Was it more religious? Were they encouraging you to be curious in a, um, in a way that was, you know, it sounds like you're a natural academic and, and curious, but were, um, was that the kind of culture you were growing up in or what was your family life uh, like in terms of spirituality? Um, my family um, was open-minded, but not really um, um, in a certain religion. Um, we were free to uh, have a religion. We were baptized Catholic, but um, this was how it was at that time. And um, we were not forced to do anything we didn't want to do, but we were a normal family with problems like other families also have. Um, my, my father was a chemist and my mother had studied pharmacology, but she did not really um, de do her profession. We, she was a housewife with um, and a, a good mother. But also we had normal problems and sometimes we had different opinions. But uh, we were promoted to whatever we wanted to do. So my sister is more in history and, and languages and I was more in nature and science. And my brother, yes, he studied um, chemistry like my father and did some computer works later. And um, yeah, I... Um, went to school in Germany and after that I did studies in Marburg in Germany where I studied biochemistry and um, um, biology and I uh, did my uh, work, my diploma work in medical microbiology where I um, did my work on um, antibodies um, in relation to body temperature, antibody production in relation to body temperature. And I did it um, in a microbiology lab laboratory on influenza. And um, at that time, I learned a lot about um, all these tiny things. And later, I had the wish to uh, learn more about the holistic things. So I did also in Bremen, where I worked, uh, philosophy and ethics. And that made a more, um, more big um, influence on me and, and where I was more interested in also doing research, but uh, thinking about the things in a holistic way. And yes, I, I did some systems biology, but I also did a lot of physio um, physiology and of um, philosophy and ethics. So I'm interested in, in a broad spectrum of things. And this is even more as I'm getting a little bit older. Very cool. Um, so it sounds like maybe some of your upbringing, I mean, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, as they say, uh, and uh, or, you know, in a Mendelbrot sense, the uh, peas weren't that different. So it sounds like your interests were very similar and right in line uh, across the board with some of your mother and father's. 
Um, what were the kind of discussions? Oh, I don't really want to focus forever on your childhood, but it's always very interesting to see how people develop and where it pushes them in their uh, view of themselves and the view of their world ontologically. Um, were, were, were they more, uh, were you guys talking about things in a mechanistic way? Did you think there was something like spirit or were they pretty much atheistic? I mean, they maybe were open to spirituality in general, but did they have kind of a philosophy they were that you were living by or, you know, going through school, were you curious about things uh, in that way? Or did you always look at it kind of as a machine or how, what's your ontological kind of perspective? Um, you see, at the beginning, I was just learning and thought things are like I um, just got them to know. And um, at school, I was interested, but not in all things the same way. Um, I learned a lot, but um, not everything was so so interesting to me. And um, maybe dependent on on also um, if you are in, in in poverty. But um, later, when I began to study. I really was interested in the things I studied, and I, I did a lot of work. I was, at the beginning, I was more um, reductionistic and mechanistic um, because um, this really brought new um, knowing to me. And later, I saw the things more as a net, uh, net that is everything is combined with everything. So I, I also think now not only in particles and material, but I think in, in fields and holistic things, in interaction, in communication between all things. But this is like my own evolution that I went through. And uh, yeah, I'm interested in evolution of um, the planet, the universe, um, the living creatures, nature, and my family was open to promoting me in whatever I did. And but it was not that um, we were a special family. It was just that they realized I liked books and I liked to go out into nature. And we collected so many things, and my father could explain so much. And my mother herself was very interested in ancient cultures. She would have liked more to study archaeology. So you see, there's a broad spectrum. My, my parents, um, in the evening, they just um, read books to one another and had discussions. We did not have television when we were young, so it was later that we got it. So we had more talking than today's in families. I would say that's a good thing, actually. Um, very creatively engaged and obviously intellectual, um, so that's very cool. So... Um, it sounds like you were pretty studious and and pretty diligent when you got into the um, academic ring. Did you know right away that you were more interested in evolution and biology and you know how things work in that sense? Um, I mean, it's it, like what were some? Do you do you play an instrument musically or are there, uh, do dance or art? Like, are there any things? And the funny thing is, it's not at the expense of science. 
it sounds to me like you're using science as an art form of expression and, and uh, creativity. But I'm just kind of curious if there's other kind of hobbies that you have outside of it. Yeah, you see, I like music and um, I do not really play an instrument. I learned um, when I was a child a piano a little bit and the flute, but um, I'm not playing instrument. But what I liked from beginning was um, like doing dancing and, and gymnastics and sports. Um, I did a lot of sports always, very different everything. And um, yes, I even did parachute. And um, I, I like to climb uh, mountains and, and go hiking and um, go in, visit other countries and other cultures and listen to other cultures. Yeah, I, I never was like uh, knowing um, everything before I saw it. I just um, um, like to visit countries and learn from other cultures and include um, this knowing to my own knowing. So it's um, like um, like little pieces that fit together and make a picture of my life and my knowing. Yes, and um, concerning um, art, um, I did sometimes when I was younger, I did a little bit painting and these things. But um, now I most like my, yes, moving the body, I would say. Yeah, that's it. Kinesthetic learner, it sounds like, uh, well, which is fascinating. So it sounds like you were kind of coming up in a culture, a Petri dish, if you will, um, at a very interesting time. Obviously, we're in a more um, pro-female time. It's not perfect, but like you're not having to deal with, you know, Galileo type getting burned at the stake for opinions. Um, and obviously we'll get into that, Jim, we'll get into that. Oh, okay. Maybe she has a few burn marks. I'm not sure. But, um, the idea is like, it's, it, I mean, every time is an interesting time to be, but we've been in a very condensed evolutionary period, um, in terms of the sciences, in terms of philosophy. So we're in a postmodern, um, kind of, especially after like the 1930s, with Freud and Jung, as well as uh, quantum mechanics and things like that, changing the way in which we saw the world. What were kind of the styles of thought that you were getting um, accultured in when you were getting your bachelor's and master's? Um, at that time, when I got my master's, I was really, um, let's say, um, traditional science. And um, I was interested in physics and math physics, um, chemistry, and all, everything that was science, but I always loved nature. And um, so the, it was the philosophy that brought me to a broader and wider view of how nature functions, more the communication, interaction, and yes, quantum mechanics and all these things brought me to that particle is also always also a field. Uh, everything is um, more or less in our view that we have as humans because we don't know everything. There are a greater and things behind that we cannot imagine because we our brain is not really um, built for everything to understand, but we can let's say, have a slight uh, 
view of this, what could be above us. And yes, quantum mechanics also is um, helping us to understand that the things are always in interaction. Everything is also uh, creating waves. And these electromagnetic fields of everything, they interact. And it's interaction that makes um, the feelings and also life and, and health. And now I see health, um, it can see it from both sides, uh, like mechanistic and reductional, but also holistic and in, in systems and in interaction. And I see, see it as um, electromagnetic fields, but that is not the last view, because I know that I cannot understand this uh, great thing like life and, and all the creation. I actually just made a post on Facebook from somebody who's been on the podcast, Rich Jarvis, um, and it is a view of, I believe, supercluster galaxies or something like that called Lanikai, which is like this massive level zooming all the way out that we can get kind of with our human awareness now in terms of the cosmology, and it looks very, very similar to a human heart. Um, so it kind of goes with that uh, Egyptian type maxim, as above, so below, as within, so without. It seems that there's um, always more mystery, and that's kind of what we've signed up for. I do appreciate what you're saying, where it's a both and, and not an either or. There is a mechanistic um, aspect to all things, whether it's DNA transcription or linguistic, um, you know, communication or you know, stars collapsing into elements, etc. But uh, that I've always kind of looked at that as the details in the movie set in terms of the action reaction kind of mechanistic element. Like that's good, but there's a story it seems behind it too, which is obviously the metaphysical uh, narrative that usually and meta narrative that we usually overlay on top of things, i.e., religion, spirituality, things like that. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with Bashar or with the Law of One stuff. I haven't read the Law of Ra or Channel Material Law of One, but it sounds like you might be hip to that. Uh, if Raphael, if you wanted to kind of explain it in your best sense, I'm sorry, oh. I didn't. I did not understand what you wanted to know. Oh, well, basically, uh, it's just about a certain, let's say, system or view of uh, spirituality. One may say, um, I'm not sure if we we probably spoke about it at some point. Simply put, it's about following your highest excitement. So doing what makes your heart sing and therefore, you know, being successful in that and so on and so forth. And that, uh, how should I say, the inner state, in a sense, is more important than the outward circumstances. Yeah, I think that um, we have, uh, what we have to do in our life is to find out who we are. If we don't know who we are, we cannot interact with other people in a good manner because we always feel that something is missing, something is not okay. So we need sometimes like to meditate or to sit in nature and just um, let these things come into us and also just um, let the things from inside um, go outside and feel what is going on with us. If we are not able to um, 
receive our own messages from inside, we are not able to receive messages from outside, from partners, friends and people we meet. Our eyes are closed and we uh, have a very narrow mind. So life is opening our mind to our being and also to the being of other creatures and humans. And in understanding who we are, we get able to understand the others, who they are, because every person is, every human is unique. And the uniqueness, uniqueness is something that we have to find out. But on the other hand, we share our love for living and our love for being here. And we have problems, they might be different, but we, we all are humans that have to um, go through this life and so we sh really should respect one another and have a, a good feeling for the others. So I think uh, religions can be very different and some people even are not religious. But uh, what we share is like a golden rule, a golden rule that tells that um, we all um, want to be treated um, in the way that, yes, we have to treat people in a way that we want to be treated. And this shows us that we are all one in humanity. And this is what we have to learn during life. That's kind of what I was getting at with the um, Love One channel material, Raphael, in the sense that there's levels, um, just like a physicist might focus on particles or a zoologist might focus on animal behavior or, you know, um, an archaeologist might be trying to find remnants of a lost culture. It seems that our perspectives dictate a certain reality tunnel in a sense, uh, but much like a coral reef, um, there's a unity in the diversity and in some weird way um, people can get very hung up in a sense on their perspectives so that's kind of what religions and political philosophies are where people tend to think uh, their way is the only way and that can become problematic how uh, how do you look at nature um, in terms like you were saying you saw the struggle in nature how do you look at um, chaos and maybe perceived disorder or um, like in a Nietzschean way, domination? How do you look at that in terms of a holistic approach? Yeah, I see both sides. So I see the struggle of life, but I also see the good relations. And sometimes I'm a little bit sad about nature because not everything is like in harmony. But sometimes you sit, uh, let's say, on a meadow, you um, see flowers, you hear the insects and the birds, you see this blue sky and the sun is shining, uh, it's on your skin, it's warm, and then you love nature. And sometimes you see the struggle of life, um, animals and plants and Yes, there is fight. Uh, we cannot ignore this, but maybe 
it in evolution things grow in a better way so we get um, from times to times more harmony because also in our health it is if we live in harmony with ourselves um, disease has not a big chance but if we are in disharmony which means that our yes let's say electromagnetic field is is not in coherence but in dissonance then we are prone to disease and yeah this is what i see um there is love and and evolution in a bigger way that is in harmony but there is we are not really in the final good state so it sounds like you have a teleological perspective in that we're going from maybe a certain level of consciousness um i think this is kind of what i was getting at rafael with the law of one where maybe mineral life is very different than plant life and the and their domains have very different requirements so for example when uh you know before there was kind of plant like flora and fauna on earth when it was just volcanic activity and kind of condensation of moisture cycles and things like that um it didn't have a moral component necessarily it was at a certain vibratory level so you know if a huge volcano explodes it's okay it's not good or bad kind of and then you rise up and you have you start having kind of a competition in a sense um for photosynthetic availability with plankton and plant life um and you know you get things as diverse as venus flytraps eventually once animal life starts coming on board um and the and i'm not sure if those struggles like you're saying they're inherent to the nature of the system at the time i think one of the personally one of the um things that sets humans apart is our ability to maybe transcend the system that we're still a part of ultimately in the sense that we can have compassion and inclusion and love uh we've had rupert sheldrake on who's a scientist and his field is kind of morphogenetic fields and there seems to be levels of information exchange beyond just mental or linguistic that maybe we're not even consciously aware of so like in a hippie sense like vibes if you want to put it that way um and those things wouldn't be inherent in the system at, at, at an earlier phase so for example just geological phenomenon maybe doesn't have the same thing as when you get to animal life and maybe at this point we're starting to not transcend fully but synthesize into a new level of evolution whether it's prefrontal cortex related or more than that um we're starting to understand how holistic the system really is in a weird way it seems like uh it's it's very reflective in the process of um human gestation and birth and growth in that uh you know we're dependent on a system just like a baby in utero and then it's born and it's in a process of individuating becoming itself and expressing its genes and preferences and likes and dislikes all in a terrarium of being in a sense and eventually after struggling to make itself known you know like the in your 20s and 30s you're trying to be independent and successful on your terms and very willful and probably when you start becoming you know 40 50 etc um you start mellowing out and kind of seeing though yes you are a solo instrument in an orchestra you are still embedded in an orchestra and there's better and worse ways to play as you were saying in harmony um but not you know the oboe is not the piano is not the uh you know timpani so it's like 
everybody has a very different role in the song of creation. And that's one of the most amazing things to me, where it's just like the diversity, um, because there are obvious correlations to certain kinds of quote evolutionary paradigms in the sense that like, um, you know, bipedal hominids are very specific and you could see why that kind of occurred uh, given certain presuppositions. But at the same time, uh, things like dragonflies and how they kind of they're water nymphs basically and then for no real apparent reason that we can discern they climb up and and through hydraulics kind of sprout their wings and become airborne they evolve into a totally new domain um, i think everything in a sense has the potential to do that and that uh different kind of time epochs kind of overlap and and it's all good in that sense uh what is your kind of opinion on uh when you, well, uh, you're very interested in evolution what are your kind of presuppositions in terms of like origins and maybe teleological like uh, do you think we're going to an omega point how do you feel about things like artificial intelligence and i don't want to overwhelm you with questions but i'm just we could talk a little about maybe evolution um, and Raphael, if you wanted to kind of explain the raw material in a better way than I have, feel free. I think it's understood, and it's. I think evolution is a is a great topic. Crystal, uh, anything you'd like to mention about that? Yeah, thank you. Um, uh, you mentioned Rupert Sheldrake. I read his books long ago, very long ago, and I know the theory of the morphogenetic fields. And uh, what I found out is that, or what I think is that everything that we do, do what we think, what we say, how we live, um, is not lost. It's, it's somewhere in the universe, and it's a part of the evolutionary field that the maybe next generation or whoever arrives in this field um, has as a basis for, yes, for its own or his own evolution. And, um, yeah, we don't know how, how life um, came to the world. Um, there are different theories. The religions have answers, um, science has answers. I studied a lot of different things. I don't have the last answer. I think some things are eternal and I don't understand everything. And maybe um, I can learn more and maybe in evolution uh, we will um, understand a little bit more. But we just have to um, accept there, that there are things that are greater than we are. And um, that's what I do. And I have no problem that I do not understand everything and do not know everything. And yes, the basis of life, um, there are some theories, but it's not so interesting now to go through all this. It would take a long time. But what we do, I guess, know, which one do you feel is most compelling? And that we're not, I'm not looking for the right answer. I'm just curious as to your perspective. Where life comes from? Do you mean where life comes uh, from? Uh, well, however, well, we can break this down. Uh, obviously, we're in a period kind of where neo-Darwinism is kind of the reigning paradigm. Um, there's this idea that, you know, essentially, I mean, to make it very reduced, like things evolve, mutations occur, um, survival of the fittest seems to be, a, uh, and competition seems to be a motivating factor in 
fields maybe, maybe one main theme i mean of course the one topic we bring up here all the time is the i mean or i bring up all the time is of course the potential for quite rapid evolution which may also hint at some kind of exterior intervention you know here we get into the idea of you know alien genetic manipulation whatever this would mean exactly or the strange stories in the bible that's of course one perspective maybe a general question in terms of how you would see it is this would be my question it would be possible to explain spontaneous and very fast evolution that appears to have occurred in history and i guess the other main question you may speak to is this whole issue of uh, cooperation versus competition because as jim said with the neo-darwinism and you know the selfish gene and all of these oh so smart individuals i mean you know in my <laughs> in my ranking they're not very high up let's say but anyhow and then you have another view that is more talking about cooperation and these other type of fields and communication um so how maybe you see evolution as such Yeah, this is a very big field because uh, evolution, I spent years and years um, to to study it. And I also taught evolution, but uh, it was a whole semester with six hours a week um, that took it. So I, I just can say, I can give some some um, ideas. Uh, yes, there is, if you look um, at, at the living system, there is both. Uh, let's say there's more than two things. There is something like uh, Darwinism, but there is also a lot of cooperation and symbiosis. And there is like um, just uh, acceptance with, without um, symbiosis. There's everything. And um, the even the microorganisms have uh, interaction, have communication. We know that the trees communicate um, between one another. We know that plants do it. We know that um, the uh, animals have different languages that we do not understand. That's why we always told they are stupid. But we were too stupid to understand their language, which is older than ours, is because they lived before us. So um, these things are established um, from the beginning. Without communication, there is no life. Everything is interaction. And if interaction becomes more, um, um, more uh, specific, it's communication called. And... Um, Yes, we we also get from our um, from our surrounding um, we get um, a different stimuli, and these stimuli um, we um, we use for interaction between our cells and in our brain, and we interact with the mic micro system with the microbes in our universe. Um, we eat them, we, we um, get them through our skin. We, what we call infection is evolution. Without infection, no evolution. Uh, so um, it, I think we have a wrong picture of what infection is. Infection is a normal thing um, because um, we have more virus and more um, bacteria than own cells in our body. And um, they are integrated in our um, stomach and our uh, um, digesting system. And um, they are, they, we live in harmony with them. 
and um, they also um, come in contact with our organs and they might interact with our genes and they even might at, at the end of evolution become our genes and that's no problem that is just evolution and that does not say that we are made of material only because there is a greater system beyond everything but um, it is wrong to see everything as a combatation uh, it's um, maybe in the beginning it is but it can come to interaction to communication to symbiosis and to acceptance and sometimes yes um, we, just neglection and this is why um, people are unique in health and also in life um, I think there is not a disease, there are just humans that interact with the surrounding and if the interaction is perfect, they are healthy and if it is, let's say, normal, they are healthy and if it is a problem, you become ill and this is what I see in a very short way of evolution and um, yes, it's it's like we create our own field in in our um, world, and if we are in harmony, the um, it's like um, the waves are um, in in a resonance and not in dissonance. Very cool. Um, I'm I'm not sure if you've ever heard of the. Um Jesuit priest turned scientist uh, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. I did not understand the name. Uh, his name is pronounced maybe more in German way, Teilhard de Chardin. Uh, yeah. Yes, I heard about him, and I'm not at the moment. I'm not not so in in the topic. But um, yes, it's it's a, a little bit spiritual, and it's it's a little bit between religion and spirituality. That's what I could say. Right. Some of the things he was proposing, because he helped, I think, um, he was part of the discovery of the Peking man, and just like uh, you know, evolution within the field of our understanding of who we are in this material reality, whatever that might mean. Um, and basically, he was kind of uh, into the idea of the omega point, that everything is in a symphony moving. Um, like you were saying, um, some things uh, have um, – well, it's not all combat, but there's a place for that, and there's a time for that. And that, um, and that we're moving towards this kind of greater, greater understanding where I guess we'll come to a place where uh, all is – all is as it should be. It's balanced in an equation way in a dynamic kind of terrarium sense. I'm not going to defend his ideas very well. Uh, but basically, he you know, was thinking of things like the newosphere, thinking there was a mentality, a uh, sphere of mentality and will, maybe psychic um, or otherwise, like maybe divine, uh, guiding things. So I, I like your approach, though, because you're open-minded, you're humble. You, you know, you're saying anybody who says, I know, and here it is, that's kind of a dangerous position. It's good to theorize. It's good to converse. It's good to be creative and willing to not hold presuppositions at the expense of other possibilities. Because in some sense, um, I guess in a multiverse sense, maybe there's a universe where everything um, is happening in one place and not in another, and there's a spectrum therein. 
Um, but in terms of uh, Pierre, the reason I was mentioning him is it seems there's systems that kind of grow from a place kind of like um, on a, a tree. There's maybe like on a pine tree, you see different levels of foliage. And then there's a punctuation up to another level and another punctuation. Do you, uh, it sounds like you have a both and kind of view, but I'm wondering what some of your thinking in terms of why things have punctuated and there's no meta narrative answer. I'm not looking for the biggest why I don't expect any human has the why. Um, but what, what are your flavors of thought in terms of maybe why, why humans, you know, became linguistic and why we've become the, you know, dominant species on the face of this planet? I think um, that evolution is something that is um, in an interaction between um, the different species. And with interacting, things change. It's not only mutation. Uh, it's also um, the... Um, the um, interaction between um, the different uh, species. And um, yes, you cannot survive without being in contact. So who had the better contact had more, um, had more um, children. And with this um, problem solving, the interaction became better and better and the communication. And so um, when when the um, surrounding changes, also the um, living creatures have to change in a way. And this leads just to different species and call it a human or whatever. I don't think that uh, we are the, the highest. We don't know what the universe um, has that we don't know. There are so many planets. There are so, so many galaxies. And yes, on Earth, we have to um, have respect and, and tolerance. And we have to be true and we have to promote life. So this is what we can do because um, we have so much power, but we use our power sometimes in a very bad way. Uh, think how we treat animals, how we treat cattle, and how we treat these dogs. Um, they they are um, they are creatures that have feelings. They have communication. And Feelings and communication, yes, that's the key word. <laughs> Your thumb may have slipped from the device unless she lost internet. <laughs> no, in this case, that may be the issue actually, or some other temporary thing. However, no issue at all. I would say we're just going to make a music break right here and then come back. Let's evolve with the changes, baby. This is Team Rabbit Hole 149 with Crystal Meyer, who has just restored her internet connection. Welcome back. Thank you. I'm back. You're quite adaptive. I'm sure uh, there could be some beautiful analogy in terms of evolution that I'm just failing to articulate well. But good job. You have adaptive genes. Pass them on. 
So maybe taking the gears from evolution a little, um, and Raphael, however you want to kind of steer this, feel free. Um, you started focusing more, like you were saying, on HIV, probably get into some COVID stuff. Um, and I don't know how conspiratorial or not you are, but um, what has been um, your major kind of output after graduate work and um, what, you know, what kind of fields are you trying to influence with the work you're doing? Yeah, um, I focused um, on microbiology and later on HIV AIDS. I got to know um, a lecture in Bremen where Stefan Lanka talked about tests that Roberto Giraldo did with um, people um, with their blood. And he found out that everybody was positive concerning an HIV test when he didn't dilute the blood. And at that moment, I was interested, but I did not really um, go so deep into it. Um, but let's say about 30 years I'm in this topic um, concerning HIV AIDS. And I did research in Bremen only a little bit, but um, more research I did in Belize, where I taught medical students at the university in different topics and um, in genetics and epigenetics and cell biology in microbiology in ethics evidence-based medicine problem-based learning and at that time i did a lot of research concerning hiv aids because in belize um, a lot of people tested positive and i found out that um, in Belize only the ELISA test was done, which is for antibodies, but no Western blood test, which is a confirming test that um, is based on electrophoresis with protein bands on paper. And also this test is not really, um, let's say, something that is um, scientifically totally proved proven, but uh, a little bit more than only the ELISA test. And so I went more into this topic and um, I studied the PCR test, which Karimalis had invented, the Nobel Prize winner. And he um, said that this test is not um, created for proving a virus, but only for proving um, tiny parts of DNA or RNA in um, the probe that you test and yes this is where i did more research and just found out that things cannot be as they are told and how they are proven and at the beginning so many people died of what is called aids and i looked for a definition but there is no really good definition for AIDS. It's, uh, it's more than 70 symptoms that could be um, proven as AIDS. It could be malaria, it could be lung infection, it could be everything or nothing, just illness. Um, and um, having a positive HIV test does not mean that you are ill. The same with corona test now. Um, having a positive corona test, most people that test positive might be um, healthy or sometimes false positive, and same was with HIV. 
And that is why I am also interested now in Corona because um, the HIV test um, had um, horrible outcomes at that time. The um, people got um, medication called AZT, and AZT um, was first used for against cancer, but it was too um, poisonous for the people who uh, got it, and so they died of it. And um, it was retracted for cancer, but it was um, used later for what is called AIDS people. And they died. So after all the years, um, the medications um, were different and people's, more people survived. And it was called that um, people survived because now uh, we have better medication. But to say the truth, the first medication was just killing the people. So if you retract this medication and people survive, um, it's clear why. And um, with HIV, that is really uh, a bad thing because, you see, we humans are very different. Our immune systems and our genes, we differ in our genes and our immune system. We have lab like markers in our on our white blood cells, which are called, called um, human leukocyte antigens. And these are like flags on our cells. And we differ in the flags that, that we have. So um, it is just that some people test positive because of the um, the country they live in. They might have a lot of um, bad living um, conditions like um, no good drinking water, no hygiene, and um, what is called... HIV is just um, a gene expression of the own genes. The um, HIV genes, you find them in, some of them you find in all individuals, not only in animals, also in plants. And this is a problem because um, more or less people can test positive without having any symptoms and this um, led in former times to very bad outcomes. Um, people might have a disbalance in the immune system, but um, this can be solved because we all suffer when uh, our balance is wrong. Most people suffer when they are acidic. You see, we have to be alkaline in our blood and um, we have to, to get enough electrons. Um, people who have oxidative stress lack electrons and they are not slightly basic like they should. They are acidic. And yes, and the DNA needs enough photons to stabilize the structure. And um, this is, um, they need vitamin D, they need hygiene, they need good living conditions. And um, yes, you see with this um, HIV, um, people, people have uh, problems because it's just that um, the, their immune system reacts to um, stress, maybe stress, and um, this leads to disease, but it's not like a virus. So this is very short. I can add that 
pregnant um, mothers, they um, might test more positive because they uh, switch their immune system from cell to um, antibody because they want to protect the fetus, which has 50% genes of the father. And um, people of African descent just have different genes because they lived in evolution in, in, um, in a... In a, a, um, a more diverse environment. Environment that had more um, mic microorganisms, so they needed a more active immune system. And now it might be a little bit overactive. Or sometimes it's active and it's okay. So you can test positive, but it's okay because you just fight bacteria. Um, because what is um, called HIV uh, genes, they are um, now symbiotic, normally symbiotic for us. Um, they might overreact sometimes. And homosexuals uh, might just um, react to partners' proteins from sperms and uh, these things. So it's allergy, it's uh, autoimmunity. It might be fighting um, bacterial um, organisms. It might be stress, protein overload. It's a lot of things. It's stress and it's the whole system that is just in a disbalance. It's more what we call T2 and then T1. And um, yes, this can be solved, the problem, by reducing the stress, by just um, implementing better conditions. And um, this is something that is, I would say, leads a little bit to what we call epigenetics because um, the genes get active um, by stress and um, the, uh, some genes are that are locked down normally uh, by um, becoming methylated. They cannot help to um, protect the immune system. So it's, it's something between genetics and epigenetics, stress and the environment. A lot of ins and outs, as the big Lebowski would say. It's funny because um, I've been to Belize uh, back in 2001-ish, I guess, uh, maybe 2003. Um, my family took a cruise ship from Miami to Belize and we went in and checked out the Mayan pyramids and stuff. Um, and it's not surprised. It's a beautiful country, but it's very, uh, like you're saying, kind of developing in a lot of ways. And uh, when we're talking about um, external environments causing certain um, things to happen in your body and your DNA, that's I can see that being the case there. This kind of brings up a subject um, that I don't know what your opinion on is. Uh, what in in the 17 and 1800s, um, there was kind of a standardization of reality, kind of a weights and measures, this is the norm kind of thing going on. Uh, and it sounds like what you're saying is like different, you know, the macaw is not the same thing as a polar bear and their environments did man different things of them. So if you put a macaw in the Arctic, it's going to die, not only because of temperatures, but it's just not ready for that environment. And maybe the same thing could be said of polar bears. Um, do you think that uh, obviously it seems like somewhat political and maybe even um, 
ethnocentric or xenophobic to a degree to be like, this is, you know, the Queen's English is the standard and everybody should have these conditions. Everybody who isn't is a savage. How much do you think that kind of thinking has played into the way we apprehend what's, quote, normal in terms of genetics? I think that it is wrong to talk about diseases and germs um, just, um, let's say, like the coronavirus now. You see so many um, people just test positive and have absolutely no symptoms. That's the same with HIV. You might test positive without symptoms, but the consequences are so fatal because you are forced to do, in many countries, you are forced to do things to, to, um, you are in fear. It's like, like a nocebo. You see, a diagnosis is a nocebo. And I think it's, it's wrong to give a diagnosis by particles. You have to, um, to recognize the whole being, the human being with Yes, you can can look at the genes, you can look at the conditions, um, but you have really to make difference between one and the other. That's why we have doctors and we need time for them to to speak and to listen to the patients. And yes, it's good to have uh, some techniques that help in diagnosis. But um, I think... Um, Disease is something that a person um, is is um, in a situation. It's it's not a germ or or a condition. It's always an interaction of a holistic system that is an imbalance. And uh, yes, medicine is is not only science. It it is also art. We talk of art, and um, we we cannot just see. Um, human beings as only from a reductionistic um, way. We have to see the whole person, and that is why medicine is art. But it's based on science, and that is okay. Wait, what you're so, saying? Oh, go ahead, Rafael. No, what I'd like to do, just to pro provide some context and maybe also make it a bit more, not really political, actually, but just maybe on target and on point. So... Crystal, thank you. You already mentioned that Curry Mollis, the inventor of the PCR test, actually himself stated that the test is not suitable to determine, I believe, what would be called viral load. There is the whole issue with dilution that you explained. And as I understand, most of the tests used today, even in the current crisis, actually are PCR tests. And what I'd like to do just briefly, I was just, you know, making a quick search. This is from targetliberty.com. What you don't know about Dr. Tony Fauci who is, of course, right now the, let's say, worldwide main advisor because he is the official scientist of the coronavirus task force, military term, of course, in uh, the US under Trump. And here it goes back to Dr. Peter Duisberg's book, Inventing the AIDS Virus. And I would just like to read two or three paragraphs because it's pretty interesting and kind of eerie that the same names show up especially considering what Crystal had mentioned about the quote-unquote epidemic that happened back then, the issues with the medication they were using, so on and so forth. So here are a few snippets. <clears throat> so it says, uh, he learned his domineering, damn the science, play to the media, from Robert Gallo. And here, quote, the announcement was made prior to the publication of any scientific evidence confirming the virus theory. 
with this unprecedented maneuver, Gallo's discovery bypassed review by the scientific community. Science by press conference was submitted for the conventional process of scientific validation, which is based on publications in the professional literature. The only questions to be studied from 1984 on were how HIV causes AIDS, what can be done about it. The scientists directing his search included Robert Gallo, David Baltimore and Anthony Fauci had previously risen to the top of the biomedical research establishment as experts on viruses or contagious diseases. Naturally, the virologists chose to employ their familiar logic and tools rather than dropping their old habits to meet new challenges when AIDS appeared in 1981. Well, that's something I was going to bring up, the, politi the politicization of things. Um, it seems like... Uh, one thing I was going to say, and I'm forgetting how it correlated, but like basically some people like we, we live life in four, four time, like music. And then sometimes some people are living in six, eight or seven, eight or whatever, different, like a swing time. And it's appropriate for their environment. Um, though based off of the four, four, it's atypical. Um, and then it becomes a better versus worse situation. Um, and that becomes politicized. I'm not trying to interrupt the flow of thought uh, that was just coming to mind. Um, yeah, so how allow me just to mention stuff. Go ahead. One more, one more paragraph out of this. And again, this is a book that's like, let's see, Inventing the AIDS Virus, Peter H. Duisberg from May 1st, 1998. So that's an old book. And he's writing about Fauci. So here it says, Fauci did some shady renaming to keep his AIDS theory strong. And then quoting the book, the literature includes more than 4,621 clinically diagnosed AIDS cases that are all HIV-free. To cover up the discrepancy with the overwhelming correlation, HIV-free AIDS cases were renamed in 1992 as idiopathic CD4 lymphocytopenia cases by the CDC and Anthony Fauci. So, Chris, so, anything you'd like to mention about this, the current situation, the current actors, and anything you know about it? Yeah, you see, I read the book of Peter Duisberg, and I met him more than one time. I met him in the U.S. at a conference, and I met him in Vienna at the AIDS conference, and we talked together. So, um, And we also emailed uh, a little bit longer ago. And um, yes, I know his theories and I know what um, F uh, Fauci said and did. Uh, yes, politics, this is something very special. Um, um, concerning um, Dr. Duisberg, I would like to uh, mention something more. Um, there was always a fight, um, is there a virus existing or not? And there are two groups that fight one another. I think it's not necessary because it's just a definition, what is a virus? We can find these particles in electron microscopes, so you, you can really make a photograph, see it, and then post it in the internet and say, here I have a picture of the virus. What you can't do is to see uh, what are the consequences of this particle, how does it interact, um, What what is it for, is it a communication particle, you do not see if it comes from inside or outside, even with a PCR test, it's just a small, a small DNA or RNA 
um, pieces. So um, about the function, we we don't have the answers. As you said, there are so many AIDS cases without um, testing HIV positive, and on the other hand, there are so many HIV positives that do not have symptoms of AIDS. So it's not possible to do um, this um, with a test to, to state if somebody is ill or not. This is a, a difference between how your uh, system functions, uh, how your genes, your epigenetics, um, your stress and your life has been and is. This is one thing and for UC politics um, I have my own opinion. He's very long in this um, position, and I think he, he just, um, yes, he has a position where, where nobody dares to to speak against him. And this is a problem because we should have open discussions from with people from different, different um, research um, and, and different outcomes. And this is not the case. So I see it as a problem also with Corona, that it's like ex cathedra, you see. That's not good in science. We have to have open discussions, um, no matter if it is on, on HIV, AIDS, um, or on Corona or whatever. Um, if we lose the, the open discussions with different um, research and opinions and people who um, do good science, um, we lose um, our freedom and we lose our democracy. That's what I can say. So allowing me to press this just a little bit further, just kind of then I'm concluded with this uh, article, just also to show historical correlations. Of course, I'm not never ever telling anyone what to believe, but you know, just providing alternative perspective. So here again, historically, it says, refuse television confrontations with Duisburg as Tony Fauci and one of us managed to do at the opening of the 8th International Conference on AIDS in Florence. So already back then, which is the same issue I see right now, to be honest, and I was quite surprised because um, Talk did a transmission about two weeks ago from Switzerland, where we actually had an official member of a coronavirus task force from Switzerland and a, let's say, quite critical and well-known doctor who also published books more on the line being quote unquote against vaccination. They had a really civil and amazing discussion and everyone was very glad that the coronavirus task force guy, you know, was, um, how should I say, uh, courageous enough and respectful enough and so on to come. It was really amazing. So of course, with communication, I would say everything could be resolved, but it's interesting that it appears that the side, which in the media and so on has been hyped so much, actually is not so very much willing to engage in open, honest, raw, and you know, non-edited debate. And then just to show where this may potentially lead to in terms of or what happened back then, this is according to Lancet, which of course, you know, may also have its own worldview or whatever, but I'm just reading here. So a second more disturbing announcement reached the public in the summer of 1989. NAID, the NIH division under Anthony Fauci, declared it would be conducting trials of ACT, what we just heard before about, in pregnant mothers infected with HIV. A drug that interferes with growth can lead only to physical deformities in babies developing in the womb. 
however, to prescribe a known mutagenic drugs. Again, we hear about mutagenics, so talking about changing genes, apparently, which is also kind of with the whole mRNA thing today they talk about. Maybe Crystal will say more about this. So, however, to describe a known mutagenic drug to a pregnant woman was a risky departure from the foremost medical principle. First, do no harm. Of course, that's the Hippocratic Oath. Right. I also love everyone to know, and I even heard recently that in Germany, they're not even doing that anymore, that oath, because they say abortion is kind of legal. That's obviously kind of against doing harm in a sense. So we're just not going to include that Hippocratic Oath anymore. You know what gives. So here it continues. Two more paragraphs. In February 1994, Fauci's American-French trial on pregnant women was abruptly terminated. Fauci and his collaborators claimed victory because ACT had reduced, quote, material HIV transmission rate by two-thirds, from 25% without treatment to 8% with ACT treatment. But in view of the possible genetic damage from ACT, Fauci acknowledged, quote, long-term follow-up for all of all of the children is essential to learn more about the risks and benefits beyond their encouraging results. After declaring victory against HIV transmission, the double-blind trials were officially broken prematurely and AZT was offered to all mothers. An editorial in Lancet did not share Fauci's, Fauci's optimism. The most worrisome aspect is the possibility of long-term adverse effects of children exposed to AZT during fetal life, especially since the vast majority wouldn't have been infected anyway. So thanks for allowing me to press that, Jim. Anything you'd like to comment or crystal? Yeah, you see, there's a long history of what has done to um, to um, people um, concerning medical tests. And you see, I have a book written, It's the End of Dogma and Taboo, where I mention some of the cases like the Tuskegee syphilis study, um, which was all conducted between 1932 and 1972 in Tuskegee, Alabama. And... Um, there was um, um, tested the natural progression of untreated syphilis in poor rural black men who thought they were receiving free health care from the U.S. government. And the study participants suffered from syphilis without having been told of their illness. It was a 40-year study which raised ethical standards because penicillin, which was known as an effective cure, was not used for patients' treatment. The study continued under numerous U.S. public health services uh, supervisors until 1972, when a leak to the press eventually resulted in its termination. The victims of the study included numerous men who died of syphilis, wives who contracted the disease, and children born with congenital syphilis. Revelation of study failures by the whistleblower led to major changes in U.S. law and regulation on the protection of participants in clinical studies. Now studies require informed consent with exceptions possible for U.S. federal agencies, which can be kept secret by executive order, communication of diagnosis and accurate reporting of test results. And there's also another study, the Cutler study, which was done um, by the Guatemalan government and and many more you see um, 
I just uh, wrote it in my book, and um, we also have like these um, things where um, Barry Barry, um, which is a nervous um, system ailment caused by a thiamine deficiency, so vitamin B1 in the diet, and it was um, diagnosed as a infection, and so on and so on. There and the Talidomid story, you know, and rifocoxib, which is a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, and which has been withdrawn over safety concerns, and moreover, Avastin, and yeah, there's a lot of, and also New York um, um, hospital where the foster children were put under AIDS drugs without consent of the families they just were were taken out of the families and the drugs were tested and many died there's it's a bad story yes it's good to remember this because we should not do and i, I hopefully uh, i hope that um, the medical students at university will have big lectures in ethics and not only told by by companies but by people who really are um, responsible for life it seems that the empire has uh and whether it's a particular country like north america with the Tuskegee experiments or you know uh germany back in the world war ii era or whatever um certain kind of top-down hierarchical systems what i will refer to as the empire um have self uh self-motivated interests at the expense of the population we'd like to think governments have our best interests at heart that's probably not the case they'd say and do what we need to hear in order to participate well with them but largely speaking these are corporations or maybe even very um experimental fields kind of messing with the populations and trying to find results without like you're saying the consent uh and it's weird because i think a lot of people whether it's september 11th being told it's like external terrorists or whether it's covid being told that we're each other's worst enemies and watch out i think um fear is a big tool of these systems and they try to divide us and like we were saying earlier at the podcast it's like we're all one kind of family with very many different expressions uh and one systems systems don't tend to take that into consideration they try to kind of um you know deify one position in the system versus another and kind of scapegoat or demonize that position and it's kind of scary to see just to the extent that um research potentially research i don't know if it's even research really but like uh actions are taken on on citizens on behalf of quote governments and stuff and we we have been kind of in a position for a long time where before the internet we just didn't have the ability to know these things maybe whistleblowers would be snuffed out or you know or killed or whatever um and now because of the internet and globalization there's kind of an awareness of all the wrongdoings and skeletons in the closet so to speak of governments medical you know research etc uh are you thinking that the covid situation is very nefarious in that sense or do you think it's just not well researched and people are jumping the gun yeah you see i think uh, there are similar problems to the what i explained about hiv because um 
there is a test implemented which has yes it's it's based on pcr and we talked about that pcr cannot prove a virus it only can prove some uh, small pieces of um, of dna or rna and these pieces have to be multiplied to to um, find them because they are so so in such a small concentration and there are no standards how many times it should be multiplied and we have different test systems um, as well for HIV as for um, the COVID. So, um, and these tests just uh, show particles. You don't know what these particles are um, acting, interfering or not. Most most people um, do not get ill. And, and what I think is it's wrong to think in the terms of um, infection as something that is very bad. Infection is absolutely normal. There are more viruses than bacteria in, in our um, body and, and more germs than cells. So this is, is by infecting us, we can live. Without infection, we would not have um, had mammals because the placenta is made from retroviral infection. So evolution is infection. And if they want us um, to stop evolution and make it um, from, from natural to, to um, cre created evolution, I don't think we know enough and we, we are not God. So sorry, this is just um, not the way we, we can live. And and it's um, losing our freedom. We are losing freedom and democracy by, by testing and, and by forcing people to do these things. And we are losing um, the, the normal life. We are humans. We need touch. We need love. We need we don't need distance. We need to, to be together. And infection is something normal. If, if we don't have infection, we, we cannot um, uh, train our immune system. We know that um, children who, who grew up on a farm, they are much better um, trained against microbes than um, children in, in cities. And uh, we can do too much by hygiene. We know in in the U.S. Uh, everything was was cleaned too too much um, by by sanitizers and these things. And the um, U.S. they have, I think, the the most um, um, autoimmunity autoimmunity um, problems. And um, they try to kill everything. Yeah, it's like like war, and and health is not war, and and um, medicine should not be war. It should be a, a kind. Medicine should be yes. Well, we're almost there. Uh, Jim, anything you'd like to reply? Well, we might be having technical difficulties. Um, no, it seems like this. What uh, at worst, we're just being naive and over sterilizing and trying to be very like Virgos who are OCD or something and try to control um, what we what we don't quote prefer without knowledge of these systems at deeper levels. Um, like she's saying, uh, the placenta is a hotbed of uh, quote infection in that sense, and that's how we are born. So we're born into these systems in a certain way, and maybe we have models that aren't. You know, on the one side of this option of the uh, what's happening is maybe we're just using the wrong models and looking at the 
things as problems that aren't problems. And then I was kind of trying to wonder if she got into more nefarious, like slow burn, long term kind of like, you know, genetic manipulation of foods to cause us to get sick over time. And then people groups eventually die out because of cancers and mutations and things like that, um, which might, you know, be more nefarious and intentional from, you know, governments, shadow governments. Someone. Someone. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, just, yeah, people trying to control reality at a level. What I'd be curious about in terms of the perspectives uh, she shared, you already mentioned, I mean, even here, the definition of virus, which means poison, you know, and then what do you define as what? It's almost like a labeling game. You apply a certain label and everyone already drops dead, basically, due to the nocebo effect, because they're so scared because they got that particular diagnosis. This also kind of gets into your pers well. Let's say your interpretation of reality determines your experience of reality. That's kind of where I can also connect these thoughts. And uh, aside from that, I'd just be curious to what extent you had heard any of the perspectives that she shared in terms of, let's say, a more uh, non-hysterical <laughs> and balanced view, for example, on viruses, infections, and also, of course, on the whole uh, HIV AIDS idea. Well, you've been trying for a while to get me uh turned on to it ever since this COVID thing dropped you're like here i'll give you the information do the research i've rarely if ever checked it out just because i've been overwhelmed with my own personal realities which is more or less an excuse but um it makes sense in that uh and it's tricky because i think conversations need to be had it's not one side is right and the other side is wrong i think as well i was kind of asking why what her perspective on maybe agendas slash conspiracies might be because on the one hand it might just be people who are not you know they're talking past each other so their definitions and presuppositions aren't lined up so they can't discuss the same things the same way for example if i were to take um some tribesmen from Papua new guinea or something and take them to new york and we were going to try to have a discussion about like what times square is um my presuppositions and their presuppositions on the reality that's that's true for both of us at the same time would necessarily be different realities um, just their lack of exposure to, you know, news tickers and electronic media, like billboards and stuff like that. Like they might think they're in a fucking nightmare or something. Whereas I'm like, oh, I'm just in Times Square. Uh, same thing would happen if I get thrown into Papua New Guinea's jungles. They're like, oh, we know the fucking which ants not to eat and which don't touch that bush. And here comes the lion or, you know, whatever animal. And I would be out of my element, quote to speak, so to, so to speak. So I'm wondering how much of it on the one hand, this is presuming just naivete and ignorance, right? Where it's like, Oh, we have people with the certain definitions kind of talking past other people with certain definitions. And um, it's almost a Nietzschean power struggle on certain people to like Fauci's declare victory in certain things. And then models are, accepted and that becomes the academic norm versus maybe open discourse so that'd be like you know on the one end of the scale but then the other is like we've talked about with kellogg irradiating cereal or the tuskegee fucking experiments which she just described where people were being given syphilis and basically being allowed to suffer and just for the sake of observation um very kind of brutal uh and you know nefarious kind of means uh of exploring health um and right it gets weird because i'm watching a show called full metal alchemist where um brotherhood i'm watching the second version and it's talking about a government basically doing all sorts of crazy stuff to uh i mean i'm not going to get into the plot here but like the government has a lot of nefarious situations in this story about they're trying to create magic and do alchemical workings whether the people are not 
know about it or not. So, I mean, I know you've been trying for a long time, Raphael, to no success because of my willful ignorance um, and a system overload, basically. Uh, but there's information out there and there's discussions being had, but the problem is people tend to um, think in terms of, ironically, herds. And if one person with enough, quote, credibility says one thing, it necessarily usually trumps what other people might think or say. And that's just the nature of paradigm shifts, you know, like everyone said the world was flat for a long time and, you know, Galileo got burned for thinking Maybe otherwise. that's a good uh, point. And in terms of asking also Crystal, you are back, which is great. Um, the whole question, as uh, Jim just mentioned, even in scientific discourse or anything else, because as you said, Jim, discuss discussions are being had. Yeah, kind of. However, Minimally with many of the Yeah, with many of the big issues, also like perspectives on climate change and so on. Uh, differing opinions do not get the same media coverage and one can often and this is just you know don't believe me just check it out uh, anyone listening one can often find that in these uh, very heavy and maybe strongly polarized conversations there is oftentimes one side that is uh, very much unwilling to communicate and discuss at all especially holding very high yeah high positions of authority Uh, they are somehow not engaging with, let's say, the most popular or well-spoken, whatever proponent of the other side, who whom themselves are always offering to communicate. So that's, to me, at least a clear sign that if you're not willing to communicate at all, especially if it's about theoretically finding out the truth, then to me, it kind of also may hint at, uh, you know, the foundational quality and strength of your arguments and or of course agenda depending you know so um that's kind of where it gets really interesting to me that's one thing and then the other thing is th the entire idea of why even follow a herd i mean i understand the logic and so on but you spoke about coming out of the womb you spoke about individuation and all of these things and also in spiritual understandings and even human design this is a very important point so then that then eventually, before needing to look for an authority to tell me what to think or do, I can first listen to my own body, to my own excitement, to my higher self, however you want to call it, number one. And then I can just look at information, sift through, and then do not necessarily need to be like, oh, I'm all for this because he said it, or I'm all for that because it's popular, or I'm all for that because it's unpopular or something but really to be able to make up one's own mind. So, Christ, if you would like to speak a little bit maybe about self-responsibility and the ability to, in a sense, be aware of one's own health and maybe even be able to do one's own research so everyone can come to an individual conclusion and not make it conditional on whatever is popular or whoever is my best friend. Yeah, you see, um, I said we have to find out who we are and then act in responsibility. And concerning science, you see, it was when in 2003 the Human Genome Project was um, ended, it was even, even difficult for the um, scientists to accept what they found out, that only 2% of um, our our genes were protein coding and 98% they call junk, but it was not junk. Now they are finding out what is um, with the 98%, so 8% are called retroviral origin, and what is the other percent, so this is um, 
RNA that is expressed in um, relation to our um, environment, to stress to our living, our thinking, our harmony, if we're doing music, if, if we are communicating who we are. And you see, there is a really um, good interaction between what is found out in science and what, what is our normal everyday life, because um, our mood is um, influencing who we are and, and how we live. And we have to find out. And so we have to respect that everybody is different, but we all should live and accept the human rights. So we are different, but we have the same rights. And people mix it up. They say, no, we are all the same. Oh, no, we are all different, but we are different, but have the same um, right to um, develop how, how, who we are. And um, we have to be responsible for um, the earth, for the nature, for the living system, for the animals. And as good as we can, because we don't know everything. We are humans, but we are not gods. So we are not God. So this is the problem. We, um, I think, um, every each child when it is born, it it has feeling for what is good, what is warm, and we learn more and more. And about the age of five or so, we we have like. Um, we, we recognize that other people also want to live and, and they need, have their needs and um, children are very kind to other children and they share things with one another. That's in us. We don't have to learn it. It's uh, the good things are in us, but they don't have to be, um, they should not um, be destroyed by, by a bad environment. So we have a big influence has the family, and a big influence has uh, the uh, the system where we learn, like school and and university, the society and the the bigger family, and yeah, this is what we should think about to uh, to form a, a society with trust. Um, we, we have to, to live the life that we want that others should live in a term that we are, um, we respect life and, and we, we live our, we live the moral that we want also that others respect for us. And, um, yes, um, the, um, the problem is that, um, we count everything in material, and, and we don't see the value. So the value is bigger than the material, and it's not only money that counts. We know it, but we also have to live um, so that also nature is, um, is intact for the next and the very next and, and the following generations. And this is what is also uh, in discussion and we should not forget that um, we also should admit that um, medicine is not knowing everything. It's not a god. And we have to respect the will of everybody 
um, if they want to be treated or not. We had the uh, examples before that this respect was not given all time. And we have go back to the, the um, ethics that respect life of people and their will and um, also for the next generations. Well, it's very appropriate to have the temperance card for this episode. In a sense, it's it's funny because it seems like um, modern and postmodern Western culture went around, and I'm not going to beat up you know Europe and stuff. That's not my point here. But there was a presupposition that they had through a lot of struggle, through you know empire building and all sorts of stuff throughout European history, they came to a point where there was a cohesion, whether you want to look at that as Rome or something, but a system came into place where there was a cohesion enough where they said, let's go take this to quote people who are not on the same program, um, you know, so colonialization or whatever, like submit or die. And it's funny because I think we're coming to a place now where we're realizing that hubris and that um, egotism kind of has led to most of our problems the people who are in you know the uh, amazon basin have been doing their thing for a long time they're fine they don't have as much mental you know uh, illness health issues or diseases uh, and they have systems to address them within their petri dish so to speak um and it's it i think in a way if you pull back large enough these are changes that kind of had to happen we've learned from our mistakes we shouldn't be so guilty kind of like that galactic heritage card we don't have to live in shame and guilt but we should be trying to learn from our mistakes whereas some people have monetarily or through power even just power benefited from some of these um bifurcations in uh systems like rome onward there's certain people whether it's the pope or you know the president or whatever certain people that benefit from these kind of systems and maybe their interest is for themselves and not others and now with it, it's kind of the double-edged sword of globalization on the one hand we've kind of destroyed the microcosms of culture um that even within whether it's hawaiian or celtic or african these people had power struggles and you know issues with uh openness and closed-mindedness and all this stuff but then it became kind of uh co-opted to a larger scale which might serve a function i'm not sure how you feel about that um you know in terms of uh you know ultimate meaning and stuff um i think Raphael has a tendency to think of as like a dance and i don't want to speak for him like a dance we're all choosing to participate in so whether these are hindu yugas or however these dynamics that are beyond our human understanding uh we've lived in a lot of ignorance um at the exclusion of inclusion and we've been less cohesive we've been more domineering more patriarchal more um controlling and we're kind of coming to a limit in the system that can handle that and there seems to be a bifurcation um right now where um yeah it's an interesting time uh, with the whole covid situation i am imagining that if it doesn't improve on a mass scale at some level whether these presuppositions are correct or not we'll start being forced to take you know vaccinations or whatever and i'm not trying to manifest that reality but it seems that people out of fear and ignorance are going to react in a certain way and maybe um before you kind of got cut off last time that uh, do you do you think that this is a more or less nefarious agenda or do you think this is systemic ignorance or how do you look at the covid thing because um from a neutral place um it seems like a lot of people reacting with insufficient information or bad presuppositions but at a in another lens one could say this is like a way to call and control populations um because of the internet and kind of 
new age kind of dawning on us. People who are in power positions don't necessarily want that. So they're trying to kind of pull, you know, whether it's terrorism or viruses or whatever, they're trying to create an environment in which we're afraid and submit our authority to quote higher ups. Uh, do you have any kind of, I mean, I'm not trying to pin you down, but it's like, do you think there's an agenda here or do you think it's just kind of people being ignorant and following trends because that's just how academia tends to work? Yeah, I think that um, whole history is um, not just by chance. There is a lot of planning in history. Also, the First and the Second World War, um, I think there is more to, to um, study. And it's, we have, even in history, um, things could be described in a different way. And with this... Um, HIV also and Corona, you see, and there was the um, flu, the pandemic flu called in, in 2009, where a friend of mine, Jane Burgermeister, was a whistleblower and had so many problems. And I can tell you, I myself had a lot of problems concerning my work on AIDS, HIV AIDS, and people who um, talk about this planning for Corona, they also get problems. And um, I think there is um, some people are always planning how the world should be. They want um, like like um, individuals be all the same, and it's easier to rule them. And we have to really um, um, we have to really uh, find out that's the way. But um, a lot of people who uh, follow the rules, they believe that this is a natural event. Event and. Um, I'm very sorry about the people who um, fear all these germs, because if you um, um, if you promote your health, you don't have to fear so much about germs. Yes, um, we should apply hygiene. That's right, but you can do sometimes too much because we know it's a balance. We live with all the microbes. We we. We could not have evolved without the microbes. It's not possible. Um, um, children who who um, have too too um, more much sanitation around, they cannot survive because we just need it, and they get so many autoimmunity symptoms. So I think this is a, a plan from certain aspect, but a lot of people do not realize. And this is really a problem. Well, Jesus' last words were, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, basically. And Buddha is all about ignorance is the problem. Sure. And even, so, those, even those that know, they don't really know what they're doing. In my estimation, you know, seen from a positively polarized six-density perspective, let's say. Another saying you may join, Jim, that some of the more critical individuals employ is... Uh, run by psychopaths, ruled by idiots or something like that. <laughs> well, I guess in a sense, we're all kind of waking up and how we respond to the situation, we can we can change it. Um, there's a good book, I haven't read it fully, but called Exclusion and Embrace by, I think, Virasma Volf or something like that. Um, and he was talking about like perpetuating victim, victimizer kind of parallels 
only goes so far. We have to realize that we do that to ourselves. We do it to others. We have to kind of be willing to put down the sword. Um, my hope is that, you know, in the coming days, years, months, whatever, people start becoming more like this might be a wake up call in a sense. Um, this gets into Dolores Cannon, right? And two timelines and that kind of stuff. I would like to think that we can, it doesn't mean to distrust science altogether. Obviously uh, she's not doing that. And it doesn't mean distrust every form of, uh, hierarchy even properly but, applying the principles of science itself you know it's that in a tempered way I, I couldn't I, this is very synchronistic to me with the temperance cardus this episode so it's not extreme you know luddite like technology science government is totally bad and it's not total trust in the system and submit and obey and lose yourself 1984 style somewhere in the middle right it's that tempered um situation i mean i think buddha's whole thing was if you tighten too tightly uh, you snap, <laughs> and if you don't have the strings on the sitar tightened enough, you can't play the music. So in order to play the music, there is a kind of a Tao, a balance. Um, even at a microbial level, we have, like you were saying, swarms of uh, and you know viruses inside of ourselves, but they're in um, they're within a balance in our own personal eco ecosystems. Uh, when that's and when life out of balance becomes an issue, that's when they kind of rear their heads. So. Um, I really appreciate you coming on. Are there any kind of parting thoughts or anything we haven't talked about that you would like to discuss, Crystal? Well, there may be, but internet connectivity issues, you know. Oh, snap. Cost, I didn't even notice she another glitch, But it's okay. I think uh, she was divulging, let's say, quite a lot. And to me, I mean, of course, her perspective by now is known to me and I very much appreciate how well she's able to lay it out and document They're it. shutting her down on internet, man. It's black hats. Yeah, I trust you enjoyed yourself as well. From my side, yeah, as always, uh, we all are, you know, part and the whole at the same time, coming together holographically and in unconditional love, especially, we will certainly be able to piece this puzzle together. And yeah, even the gray aliens landing through the aerial phenomenon in 1994 said, take care of your environment. I interpret this as meaning both the apparently external environment, taking care of nature and, you know, not slaughtering animals and torturing humans and so on. However, also internal, your own gut biome and so on and so forth. And of course, the more one gets into this, the more one may realize that also these things are very, very much connected to each other. So in that sense, all I can say is uh, be well and enjoy yourselves. Uh, Jim, anything else? Well, she's not here to accept my thanks, but I do appreciate Crystal for coming on and uh, lending her both expertise and open-mindedness to us and the audience. I think that to move forward, I, it's weird because it's a paradox. It's like we're already where we need to be, but we can we could always improve. We could always evolve. So it's you get the kind of paradox there where it's just like uh, there's toroidal tension, but the Tao howls. It's it is the the perfect now moment as it needs to be, and how we're choosing to believe into that, we participate in a holographic fractal reality that is what we prefer in a sense. So yeah, take care of your preferences, kind of do the homework internally, and as Jesus would say a bunch over and over, fear not. I think we're here during these times for these reasons, and you know sometimes some people had to deal with nuclear threat we're having to deal with other kind of existential issues but ultimately these are issues as Bashar would say nothing outside of us is outside of us it's all internal it's all us in that sense there's not even an internal external 
ironically kind of that's a false dichotomy so a convenient one for our ego monkey minds but not ultimately probably true indeed so i guess just fucking enjoy the movie and try to like she was saying um treat yourself as you would want others to be treated but vice versa you know like try to be in a world that you want to be a part of too so crystal after already giving our thanks to you now without you being here now that you're back any uh closing remarks you would have crystal yes i would like to thank you and answer with the last uh, sentence from victor frankel who said um, there are only two races in the world the decent and the undecent and we have to promote the decent and he also said that humans need for their life they need a um, uh, meaning for life and that's what i think we should always think about so thank you very much for this interesting talk thank you for being very decent yourself crystal keep on the good fight wish you all the best thank you thank you very much uh, thank you crystal thank you jim as always thank you specifically and all of you collectively <laughs> for listening yeah be well in that sense, follow your highest excitement, and uh, remember to enjoy yourselves. Team Rabbit Hole, live in action.